The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann, dedicated to teachers. I'm Brad from Heinemann. On today's podcast, Tom Newkirk interviews Ellen Keene. Mosaic of Thought by Ellen Keene and Susan Zimmerman became a runaway bestseller as the first book to explicitly describe the use and benefits of strategy-based comprehension instruction. To recognize the 20th anniversary of the book, Tom Newkirk, who served as editor, recently sat down with Ellen Keene to revisit how Mosaic of Thought came to be and the impact it had on education. I want to go back to pre-Mosaic and a conversation we had in the car after a workshop I did in Denver. And my memory of it, and I'd like to get your memory of it, is that you're being the gracious host and asking me what I could do next. And, and then I asked you the best question I've ever asked, what are you doing? And could you take it from there? Because then you... I do remember, absolutely. Remember I, I remember absolutely because I... I had it had not occurred to me that the work we were doing might be interesting or relevant mm -hmm. to anyone else. I and I had never occurred to me that I might be an author. Yeah. I love to write. I knew that I liked to write, but I never thought, particularly at that stage in my career, that I would write a book. Mm -hmm. So I actually remember it so well that I can tell you exactly the street, the intersection exactly where we were when you asked that question. And you then said, um, have you ever thought about writing a book? Mm -hmm. And I nearly drove off the road and into <laughs> the culvert. And we have culverts in the West. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I mean, I was flabbergasted. And while I was still being flabbergasted, you said, um, I think this comprehension strategy work is interesting enough that, you know, a lot of people would benefit from hearing more about it. Something like that. Yeah, but nobody was writing about comprehension then. No, no. Dolores Durkin had done a this seminal study in 1978 or 79, and it was, everyone in the research community had read that. Knew that yeah. and, and basically it showed that less than 10% of our time in classrooms went to comprehension instruction, but even that time was really mostly asking kids comprehension questions, mm -hmm. which is assessment, not comprehension instruction. Mm -hmm. So there was an understanding in the research community for the need to teach comprehension, but it was believed at that time that you learned to read K2 and then you read to learn thereafter, mm -hmm. which is, you know, just patently not the case. And so primary comprehension in particular was very, very underdeveloped. Um, and at, actually intermediate, the notion that you could teach someone to understand better was very, very foreign to most people. But there's this good research base, look at Pearson and Dole, I mean, it was solid, it was, uh, solid yes. as a rock. Yes, okay. and, and Jan Dole had been my undergraduate professor, so I had read it. Mm -hmm. And I, in my own classroom and then in, in other classrooms, started to experiment with it. Mm -hmm. They don't, researchers don't prescribe how to 
use something, I think it's up to us to decide as practitioners how you interpret the research and how you put it to work in your classroom. So I was just experimenting with my own kids and then experimenting as a staff developer in a lot of classrooms and kids um, came to life. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a sort of um, a level of engagement and excitement and almost a set of surprise surprising it was like they were surprising themselves like oh wait I said that I didn't know I could think like that and when you see kids doing that you just want to do you want to see it more and more it becomes very intellectually contagious and one of the things that made it contagious I think how you wrote the book was you started with your own model you and Susan each would describe using these processes so I think it taught teachers yeah. not only how they could teach the kids to read more fully, but how they could read more fully. Well, of course, that came from Don Graves. Well, of course, that came yeah. from Don Graves because he had worked with us in the Denver area many, many times, and what was for kids had to be for us first. And he said that over and over again, and he walked his talk. If he was teaching a writing seminar and we were participants, we wrote. And then we paused and reflected about how that, um, how our experience as writers would apply to our students. Mm -hmm. So that came directly from Graves, and there was no doubt that this book would um, would reflect that. There was no other way in my mind to do it. As a matter of fact, you know, I wanted to sort of do the whole book of just adult readings and you know in the beginning I thought that would be good um, and 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 then talking about our responses to it and and but of course it had all kinds of implications for kids so you have to write that and it's interesting how the book sold because I mean I, I guess we could say this Heinemann had no clue <laughs> that this book would sell there's no, no clue no. that this would sell oh, well, but, I mean, but it, yeah. and, and it started then it built and then built it really spoke to some need in the yeah. educational community and teachers that they weren't they it, it clarified something for them it seemed to me I think it was because and and Don Graves wrote our foreword for that first edition and he said in the foreword that it it was the having the experience of reading adult text yeah. that made the reader metacognitive more aware yeah. of their own thinking and that's a fascinating place to be yeah. that's a really interesting place to be aware of your own thinking and and I think it that may have had something to do with why it caught on but Heinemann when I when they sent out the um, the first cover which yeah. you'll remember was hideous I remember yeah, yeah. I and I called <laughs> here and I said um, mm, that cover doesn't work for me so well. And they said, too bad. <laughs> you know what? You haven't sold one book for us. So guess what? That's the cover. And I loathed it. I hated it. Yeah. But that's why we had to do a second that's edition. That's why we had to do a second edition cover, so yeah. I could pick the cover. Yeah, and, yeah. and with the mosaic I on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it but you know, it was the colors did stand out. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. It was bilious. There were some really good covers in that era, I remember. Yeah, that, that was that was right up there with the worst. It's amazing anybody ever opened it. Yeah, yeah, well, they did, and they bought it. And uh, so I wonder if we could talk about um, moving from I mean not moving away from comprehension strategies, but you know, you didn't stop there. I mean, you know, I could imagine a career that could have gone where you, you know, just worked out the implications of how to do comprehension yeah. strategies, but you decided not to do that. 
And could you talk about moving, I don't know if beyond is the right word, but moving to maybe even a deeper sense of what you want reading to be. The, the comprehension strategies was a part of it, but it wasn't like the total picture that you wanted to present to teachers. It's sort of a logical sequence, isn't it? Because if you think of comprehension strategies as a means to an end, then it begs the question, what's the end? And that was next for me in to understand, was to imagine what is the end? If, if we're saying that comprehension strategies facilitate deeper understanding, what's deeper understanding? And that was a very fun thing for me to explore because it, it wasn't something that I felt terribly constrained by the research or the writing that was out there. I just was free to explore that question with kids and that that question drove to understand what it does what does it mean to understand deeply and well and lastingly and 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 again i explored it through art and through um adult pieces of writing and you know to, to sort of contrast what what's it like for a reader to have a more literal understanding and what's it like for a reader to have a real in-depth understanding. And then of course you, then that begs some questions. What's the talk about understanding? How, what, how is, is understanding facilitated by discourse, which I'd long been interested in, and that led to talk about understanding. And so it's really just been a logical sequence in a way. I'm, I still spend a lot of time in classrooms and I still work with comprehension strategies all the time. But now I'm more interested in, in not in the strategies themselves, but in where they lead. You know, how, how, do, um, how do kids engage with each other in discourse better, for example, because of the strategies or with strategy language to facilitate that uh, versus, you know, when, when they're left with more um, literal questions, when they're asked to, to respond to recall kinds of questions. I'm not interested in that. But I, I'm still interested in the strategies. Just, just where do they lead? Is, yeah, that's really what, what has, has taken me in a different way. And it, it, it always seems to me that it's, it's kind of a quest for you, that, that this drive to, to what, is the, what is the most meaningful, the most profound interaction we can have with with reading or with learning that there's something deeply passionate about that in your work that it's there, it's yeah. driving you what, what right. is where does that come from um you know uh, it's it's interesting i if i had to say i'm not sure but if i had to say it's um it's because kids continually surprise me i, I never walk out of a classroom that a kid hasn't said something or written something or shared some thinking that doesn't just sort of blow me away. And so my thinking is, well, if she could say that here, what else, man? You know, I mean, that means they're capable of so, so, so much more than I think the vast majority of us credit them for. And I want to know how far that goes. The quest there is to is to get, you know, kids to to get kids the language they need to be able to articulate what's already in their minds. Because I I believe it's deep and profound, and that we haven't it's an iceberg. We haven't begun to begun to scratch the surface of it. And I'm continually affirmed in that belief because every time you talk to a kid, mm -hmm. you know, kindergartners, older kids, doesn't matter. 
they surprise me. And that, that surprise is a great way to have a career. Yeah. Who, how many people can say they walk out of their, of their work every day and have, you know, have had a, an extraordinary surprise, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I keep, that's what keeps me coming back. I think sometimes it's even more because I think you, you say it's in their mind, the language is in their minds, and then, but then you, you push them to, to stay with something longer. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's, one of the things I get is don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle. Yeah. Keep yeah. keep at it, and you're going to go fi- go find right. go to some place that you right. could even imagine that you could go. Well, that's true. You know, that's true for adults too. If I said, "Tom, say something brilliant right now, quick, hurry, right now, now," I said that, right? I mean, it's and, and yet that's the kind of urgency that you sense in a lot of classrooms. Okay. Oh, sorry, you didn't think of it fast enough. Anybody else? Yeah. That's the. I, I'm really trying to fight about, against that. I wrote an article for um, a leadership called All the Time They Need. And I mean all the time they need. I think we have to make, uh, at least force ourselves to fake it well enough that we're not projecting this sense of urgency and, oh my gosh, we've got to get this done and we've got to get this done and, oh no, no we're late for lunch and, no, we've got to get ready for the test. Ah! You know, that sort of agitation that we feel. Kids can't feel that. And think at high levels. You've, we've got to. Nobody can. Nobody can. You see, you never. You didn't say something brilliant a minute ago when I. I, I you I'm didn't. Right, yeah. You didn't. You're I'm still thinking, aren't still you? Thinking, yeah. And that is, you know, that's exactly the problem. And yeah. but if you, you know, if quiet time for thought becomes the norm, and I and I'm loud and fast, in personally. So I've really had to work at bringing my voice down, slowing it. And being comfortable in silence because that's what kids need they need the time to think and once that becomes the classroom norm then you're dealing with a whole other level of thought then you've really opened all kids up to to completely new possibilities this was part one of the conversation between ellen and tom Ellen is hard at work on her next book, which Tom is also the editor of. We'll release that part of their conversation in early 2018. Be sure to follow Tom and Ellen on Twitter. And to learn more about Mosaic of Thought, check out a sample chapter on Heinemann.com. We also invite you to subscribe to the Heinemann Podcast and download the Heinemann Teacher Tip app, where you can get daily tips directly from Heinemann authors five days a week right on your smartphone. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening.